Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? <clears throat> Good. Well, uh, we continue with our uh, exploration of Dogen's Uji, but I want to say a little bit about uh, situating this text. Uh, Dogen traveled to China uh, to find the authentic Buddhism, and he returned to Japan in 1227 or 1228. And then he went back to Kenenji where he had been training in the Tendai tradition. And he immediately wrote down the Fukan Zazengi, the universally re recommended instructions for Zazen. And then soon tension arose in the Tendai community and they began to, trying to take steps to suppress both Zen and uh, Jodo Shinshu, new forms of Buddhism in Japan. So Dogen left the Tendai uh, temple and settled in an abandoned temple and founded a little practice center, a little center of practice, just like Apamata, just a little center. Um, and later expanded this temple into Kosho Hodinji. And this is where Uji was written in 1240. Uh, and, uh, and Dogen lived until 1253. So he was 53 years old, he was born in 1200. Uh, and, uh, and meanwhile, before, uh, before he died, of course, he founded the temple that became Eheji, which is the, uh, one of the two foundational uh, Zen, Soto Zen temples in Japan. So, um, that's a little bit of background. So you understand the there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of competition between different sects of Buddhism and even Rinzai was starting to be uh, a little better known. And so that so Dogen faced a lot of uh, sort of controversy and a lot of conflict around uh, the different forms of Zen and Buddhist practice in Japan at the time. So that gives you a little bit of a background of how this is situated and why um, why some of the things that Dogen talks about might might be on his mind. I'm going to take up where Flint left off and, uh, in this translation, and then I'm going to share with you another translation to give you another perspective of this part of the text, which is the last the last section of the text, section 17, 18, and 19. So continuing from, as you'll recall, um, uh, Flint was talking about for the time being mind arrives, but words do not for the time being words arrive, but mind does not for the time being both mind and words arrive. So and so forth. So um, mind is a donkey words are a horse. Um, and the last line of that last section is having already arrived as words and not having left as mind arriving is not coming not arriving is not not yet. All of this is continuing to situate us in present moment experience. So in 17, he continues, the time being is like this. Arriving is overwhelmed by arriving, but not by not arriving. Not arriving is overwhelmed by not arriving, but not by arriving. Mind overwhelms mind and sees mind. Words overwhelm words and see words. Overwhelming overwhelms overwhelming and C is overwhelming. Overwhelming is nothing but overwhelming. This is time. As overwhelming is caused by you, there is no overwhelming that is separate from you. Thus you go out and meet someone. Someone meets someone. 
you meet yourself. Going out meets going out. If these are not actualize, the actualization of time, they cannot be thus. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking, such an odd thing um, that Dogen would be overwhelmed. I mean, living in 1241, there's no traffic, there's no internet, there's no busy to-do list because he's living in a monastery. Everything is done at the same time every day. So why is it that Dogen is talking about being overwhelmed and what is overwhelming? So it seemed really uh, confusing to me. And so that's when I will go to another translation is when that happens. So I will share that with you in just a little bit, but I think this is um, uh, a very interesting construct. Arriving is overwhelmed by arriving, but not by not arriving. Not arriving is overwhelmed by not arriving, but not by arriving. So this is just typical Dogen negation of our conventional ways of thinking. So he continues, mind is the moment of actualizing the fundamental point. Words are the moment of going beyond, unlocking the barrier. Arriving is the moment of casting off the body. Not arriving is the moment of being one with just this, while being free from just this. In this way, you must endeavor to actualize the time being. So then he concludes, as he often does with a story. The old masters ha have thus uttered these words, but is there nothing further to say? Mind and words arriving part way are the time being. Mind and words not arriving part way are the time being. In this manner, you should examine the time being. To have him raise the eyebrows and wink is half the time being. To have him raise the eyebrows and wink is the time being missed. Not to have him raise the eyebrows and wink is half the time being. Not to have him raise the eyebrows and wink is the time being missed. Thus to study thoroughly coming and going and to study thoroughly arriving and not arriving is the time being of this moment. So it's worth going back just a little bit uh, back to what would be section 15 in your uh, in your text. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit of a taste of this of Nishijima's translation, which is a little bit different. <clears throat> so great master Yakusan Kodo, the story goes, at the suggestion of great master Musai, visits Zen master Kosei Daijaku. He asks, I have more or less clarified the import of the three vehicles and the twelve divisions of the teaching. But just what is the ancestral master's intention in coming from the West? So the ancestral master, of course, is Bodhidharma. The three vehicles, these are the ways of the Shravaka, Pratika Buddha, and Bodhisattva, which is outlined by the Buddha in the Lotus Sutra, three different paths um, or three different vehicles. The 12 divisions of the teachings are as follows. And this was, um, this was new to me. I didn't realize there, there were these 12 divisions in the teachings. One, Sutra, original texts, um, sutras. Two, Gaya, verses summarizing the prose content of the sutras. So the Buddha would give a teaching and then he'd repeat it in a, in a poetic form. There'd be a, a poem that follows it, summarizes it. Three, Vayakarana, the Buddha's affirmation that a practitioner is becoming a Buddha. Four, Gata, independent verses. And the, the Buddha was quite a, a, an accomplished poet. Five, Udana, spontaneous preaching. 
Usually the Buddha's preaching was prompted by questions from his followers. These were teachings that he gave impromptu without any prompting. Six, Nidana, historical accounts of causes and conditions. Seven, Avadana, parables. Eight, Itivirtaka, stories of past occurrences, especially stories of the past lives of the Buddha's disciples. Nine, Jataka, stories of the Buddha's past lives. 10, Vaipulya, extensions of Buddhist philosophy. 11, Abhuta Dharma, records of miraculous occurrences. 12, Upadesa, theoretical discourses. So I didn't realize that they had classified all these teachings in, in such a way and that they were, they were so, um, so different. So he's clarified these, uh, but just what is the ancestral master's intention in coming from the West? Thus questioned, Zen master Daijaku says, sometimes I make him lift an eyebrow or wink an eye. And here the him refers to himself. So sometimes I make myself lift an eyebrow or wink an eye. And sometimes I do not make him lift an eyebrow or wink an eye. Sometimes to make him lift an eyebrow or wink an eye is right. And sometimes to make him lift an eyebrow or wink an eye is not right. So this is, you've all had this experience, right? Uh, sometimes it's appropriate to make a certain gesture or to do something and other times it's not appropriate. Hearing this, Yakusan realizes a great realization and says to Daijaku, in Sekito's order, I have been like a mosquito that climbed onto an iron ox. So you remember this very, very famous um, image. What Daijaku says is not the same as what others can say. His eyebrows and eyes may be the mountains and the seas because the mountains and the seas are his eyebrows and eyes. In his making himself lift an eyebrow, he may be looking at the mountains and in his making himself wink, he may be presiding over the seas. Being right has become familiar to him and he has been led by the teaching. Neither is not being right the same as not making himself act, nor is not making himself act the same as not being right. All these situations are existence time. So sometimes acting is the right thing to do and sometimes refraining from acting is the right thing to do, right? The mountains and time are time and the seas are time. Without time, the mountains and the seas could not exist. We should not deny that time exists in the mountains and the seas here and now. If time decays, the mountains and the seas decay. If time is not subject to decay, the mountains and seas are not subject to decay. In accordance with this truth, the bright star appears, the Tathagata appears, the eye appears, and picking up a flower appears, and this is just time. Without time, it would not be like this. So the bright star is a reference to the Buddha's awakening, seeing the morning star. And um, so therefore the Tathagata appears, becomes Buddha. The eye appears, the Buddha eye, and picking up a flower appears, which is the story of uh, the Buddha raising a flower in Mahakashapa, smiling. <clears throat> So Zen master Kisho of the Shokan region is a Dharma descendant of Rinzai and the rightful successor of Shuzan. On one occasion, he preaches to the assembly. Now you heard Flint talk about this yesterday. Sometimes the will is present, but the words are absent. Sometimes the words are present, but the will is absent. Sometimes the will and the words are both present. Sometimes the will and the words are both absent. So it's a little bit different wording, right? Um, it's about the will. Um, 
So this points to sort of the difficulty of translation from Japanese into English, in particular Dogen's Japanese, which was um, first of all uh, ancient and second of all filled with um, neologisms and uh, little logic puzzles and wordplay. And uh, so it's very difficult. The will and the words are both existence time. Presence and absence are both existence time. The moment of presence has not finished, but the moment of absence has come. The will is the donkey and the words are the horse. Horses have been made into words and donkeys have been made into will. So um, this again, this horse and donkey reference is, one, is an old one in, in Buddhism. Presence is not related to having come and absence is not related to not having come. So here's where the part that I started with today begins. Existence time is like this. Presence is restricted by presence itself. It is not restricted by absence. So he uses the word uh, restricted instead of overwhelmed. Quite different terms, right? Um, and here restricted really means um, real the real actual presence. So um, we're restricted uh, in the sense that um, what we want or imagine or fantasize is happening is not what's actually happening. We're restricted to what actually is happening. <clears throat> it is not restricted by absence. Absence is restricted by absence itself. It is not restricted by presence. So this is the actuality of absence. The will hinders the will and meets the will. Words hinder words and meet words. Restriction hinders restriction and meets restriction. Restriction restricts restriction. This is time. Restriction is utilized by objective dharmas, but restrictions that restrict objective dharmas has never occurred. So in other words, what he's saying here is, um, it, it, it's the state that, um, which real things already have. It's not something separate that can hinder real things. I meet with a human being, a human being meets with a human being. I meet with myself and manifestation meets with manifestation. Without time, these facts could not be like this. Furthermore, the will is the time of the realized universe. And this is a, uh, also a reference to his Genjo Koan. The words are the time of the pivot, which is the ascendant state. Presence is the time of laying bare the substance, and absence is the time of sticking to this and parting from this. We should draw distinctions and should enact existence time <coughs> like this. <coughs> Though venerable patriarchs hitherto have each spoken as they have, how could there be nothing further to say? I would like to say, the half presence of will and words is existence time. The half absence of will and words is existence time. There should be research and experience like this. Making oneself lift an eyebrow or wink is half existence time. Making oneself lift an eyebrow or wink is mixed up existence time. Not making oneself lift an eyebrow or wink an eye is half existence time. Not making oneself lift an eyebrow or wink an eye is mixed up existence time. When we experience coming and experience leaving, and when we experience presence and experience absence like this, that time is existence time. So you can see it has a little bit different flavor in this different translation. And 
um, I always feel like it's helpful to look at different uh, translations because it gives us a little bit richer perspective. It's not quite so limited, right? Uh, to just uh, one translator and one translator's um, interpretation. So what does this all mean to us? Um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot and, so, and I wanna put it in terms of something actual, um, which is yesterday when I was absent from here, but present somewhere else, um, which, in, in which the time being was, uh, it was really clear to me and it, probably because we've been in this intensive, you know, there was a time being of where I was finding the text message that gave me directions to where I was gonna go and get my vaccination. And then, and then uh, there was a time being of mapping into my phone where I was going to go and then getting there and then wayfinding, uh, finding first a parking space and then entering Rush Hospital. Again, wayfinding, it's a huge, huge complex. And the kind of impact of being in a hospital has on your being. Uh, and they uh, ask you right at the door to put on a surgical mask, which I already had a mask on. Um, so they said, put it over your mask. So they put the surgical mask over my mask. Um, and then, uh, and then there was, there's more wayfinding, right? So I'm, I'm coming and going, I'm arriving and leaving different spaces, the parking garage, the lobby, the atrium, and I'm directed to a nursing station, number two. And there was a very, very sweet nursing student who was the big smile, the very, very delightful um, girl and very kind. Uh, and so, uh, so this whole situation brought me to tears. It just felt so moving, this whole experience, the impact of this whole experience. And I, I had a sense of this, um, of a kind of crystallized time that is, um, absence and presence, um, all that's bound up in this, uh, a virus, um, the kind of scientific effort that has gone into identifying and creating vaccines to protect against this virus and continues to make discoveries about the pandemic. Um, and then that all had to be um, created in a way that could be manufactured and distributed. So there was a huge, huge effort to manufacture and distribute millions and millions of doses of this vaccine. And meanwhile, people have been under lockdown and time has been sort of suspended in a way, uh, but they're still present in it. And there, um, there are many people suffering from isolation and this sense of absence of all that they care about. Uh, and then of course, the absences created by the many, many deaths that we've suffered uh, that are losses from this. This was all part of my present moment experience at the moment that that sweet little nurse was giving me a shot in the arm. So I was um, absent from the intensive, but I was uh, very present to that experience. And I was arriving and not arriving, and I arrived back at the intensive, um, just really feeling the impact of this each moment, life as it is, right? One moment you're in an intensive, one moment you're in a hospital. Um, so. So while I was sitting in Zazen yesterday afternoon, I got this image and I don't very often get images. I'm not a visualizer, so I don't very often get pictorial kinds of images, but I got a very vivid image and it was a huge meeting, just huge 
uh, enormous meeting and it had presenters. So the presenters were presenting um, at this big meeting and they had handouts. There were packets that were about this thick and they were handing out the packets to everybody at this huge meeting. And they were saying, um, uh, you know, you have to memorize these packets of information. Um, it's very important that you learn how to identify and dispatch. Identify spike proteins and dispatch the enemy. And in 21 days, the commandos are coming and they're gonna have a big training exercise. And we have to know this material, every single one of you. Everyone has to be prepared. Everyone has to be boned up on this material. So someone in the back raises his hand and the presenter says, Davy. And Davy says, well, what if I'm not in the nose or the throat, but I'm in some other part of the body that doesn't you know, like have this invasion? And the presenter says very crisply, everyone must know all of this material. We don't know where this enemy is going to show up. And we have to be prepared for these commandos that are coming on the 21st. So I, I was laughing because it was such a funny, funny, complete image. Um, and just exactly what happens when you get that first dose, right? Your body is getting information, gearing up so that in the second dose, with the heavy hitters, um, they're fully prepared. So uh, so that was what I was present to for just a moment there in, uh, in sitting in Zazen. So this moment um, of mind actualizing fundamental, the fundamental point and words that going beyond uh, and unlocking barriers um, and the body cast off, which is Dogen's description of his own awakening experience was cast off body and mind. Um, and then, but not arriving, being one with just this. So all the time that we're thinking, but I'm not enlightened, I'm not arriving at enlightenment here, I'm just sitting in the zazen, you know, that also is being one with just this, and that's actualizing time being all by itself. So we were constantly having opinions about our progress or lack of progress, whether we're coming or going in our practice, but the truth is it's always just this. So there's never a time when you're not a Buddha. There are lots of times when you're confused uh, or you're unaware that that's who you really are. So I wanted to talk today a little bit about this um, being time as in spiritual terms. So I've already talked about the body, right? And embodied sense of being time and the uh, heart mind uh, sense of being time in the second talk. Um, today, I want to talk a little bit about this spiritual presence and um, time, time being as a spiritual being. So in our tradition, we have teachings, of course, um, uh, teachings of the Dharma, the precepts, uh, meditation practices, concentration practices, shikantaza, uh, wisdom tradition, the teachings of dependent origination, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path. We have this uh, also understanding of calm abiding, um, which uh, I think is best characterized by the Brahma Viharas, this overwhelming, boundless sense of kindness and compassion and um, uh, empathetic joy and um, equanimity. So it's common for us to think, and I think especially early in spiritual practice, it's common for us to think in terms of progress. 
I don't think th I don't think I'm doing well at this. I don't think I'm not making much progress. I still get angry. I don't have equanimity. I don't feel enlightened. Um, and so there's uh, often a sense that where you are is not quite right, that you need to be somewhere else. You need to be farther along on the path or you need to have some marker of progress or someone needs to approve of you or you, you need to have some kind of special experience um, and it hasn't happened yet. So you're not making progress. Um, but actually, you're right exactly where you are, right? So there's a timeless quality to our practice in this spiritual path that isn't this, that's not the same thing as saying something is permanent to say that it's timeless. It, it, it exists outside of time. And it's not subject to either clock time or even body time or even heart mind time. It's, of course, characterized by impermanence. It's not, a, um, it's not a way that you'll see things all the time. But usually we're galvanized uh, our, by our present experience of suffering or dissatisfaction of some kind. Things are not quite right. I should be calmer. I shouldn't be so stressed all the time. I should be a better parent. I should, you know, there's this kind of sense of uh, longing, things not as they should be, um, and a projection of some better future self or future situation. So we like to think that we're going to get to some magic realm uh, where our presence is unhindered. It's boundless, it's horizonless, as Flint was talking about yesterday. And uh, we recognize that our, our actual life is hindered. This is life as it is. That too is full presence. And when we're distracted, that too is full presence. On the spiritual path, since we recognize you're already Buddha, there's nothing to progress toward and there's nothing to achieve in some future moment, you know, some magical moment that, uh, that lies ahead. Instead, you'll see if you look back on a long trajectory of practice, I've been practicing now for 53, 55 years, something like that. I started when I was 17. And, and the whole, practically the whole entire time, I was thinking, I'm not getting this. I'm, I'm just one of the slow ones, the slow learners, you know, or I'm not very spiritually adept and I, I keep showing up, but you know, I don't have any magical experiences. I don't have special states of mind. I'm not, you know, and, and the, you know, the whole way has been uh, just imagining that whatever experience or knowledge or wisdom I should have, I don't have. Um, but that if I keep practicing faithfully, and diligently, someday I will. But now when I look back on it, I see every single moment from that first 17 year old kid sitting down in a state of total confusion, uh, right up until this present moment has been all of it. So all of the spiritual life, um, uh, stupid blunders, the um, general incompetence, the confusion learning forms, the, uh, the, the, uh, the moments when I thought I had an idea, but it turned out not to be really an idea that was something on the spiritual path and, um, and the kinds of um, notions I had about other people's attainment and my lack of attainment or uh, all the ways that, uh, that we expose our conditioning whenever we engage in spiritual practice. And yet, when we 
when we really understand, we see the whole, just exactly what Dogen's saying, the whole path is the way, the whole path is the Buddha. Um, nothing that you've done has been outside of this path. There's nothing you could do that would be outside of this path. And not just a path, like a path that goes somewhere. No, the path you're on that is the complete and full expression. And nothing is missing. Nothing is lacking. This is what the Buddhist, uh, what Dogen's trying to tell you. Um, nothing is missing in any of those moments. You're fully, you're fully present. So if someone was talking to me about um, uh, wanting to be authentic, which I think is um, kind of a hilarious concept because you don't have any choice. You're always going to be authentic. And the person said, well, what, you know, what about someone who's lying? Well, they're authentically lying. That's what they're doing. You know, someone who's pretending, they're authentically pretending. So, um, so we can't escape our presence on our spiritual path. We can be attuned to, oh, this is actually it. You know, this is, there's not some better realm that I'm headed toward. And there's not some darkness and delusion I'm coming out of. And there's not something I need to do to shake off the conditioning or the chains of uh, confusion I'm in the middle of. None of that is, um, is required. It's all already present. And the, the service that we do to ourselves is not, just not recognizing that, just not recalling that. And that's what's implied in that whole term sati, mind, which is translated as mindfulness. It really means to recall. It's not to attain, it's not to achieve, it's to recall something you're, you already know, something you already are, to recall yourself to that in this present moment. So it actually refers to a quality of mind, a kind of lucid, clear quality of mind where you haven't forgotten who you are, you haven't forgotten where you are, what, what present moment you're in. You haven't gotten lost in a dream or a regret or a memory of the past. So the spiritual time is always completely present in the same way that like the oak tree is present in the acorn. It's not even that it's embryonic. It's all entirely there. And we um, like to make trouble for ourselves, I would say, through our dissatisfaction with our spiritual practice in the same way that we've created dissatisfaction for ourselves in other parts of our lives. So I could see right away that I had a story that, and that story was a story of not quite measuring up, not quite doing what, what's needed or expected um, out of, you know, sheer ignorance, basically. Um, not, not with malign intent, just having no clue and not having a way to get a clue. You know, uh, get, starting to work with Joko was a way of getting a clue for sure, because she would really like with her sword, Manjushri's sword cut right through your delusive thinking. Um, and it was very bracing to be around her because of that, because you never knew when your, your beautifully crafted story about yourself was going to be completely dismantled, mantled, you know? So, uh, so everyone has their own particular way of taking up spiritual practice that reflects the conditioning uh, of the other parts of their lives. There's no other way around it. We all start that way. And we all start, I think, believing that we'll get better. We'll get better at it, for one thing, um, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll become better people. We'll be less anxious, we'll be less crabby, we'll be kinder people, nicer people, um, and more people will like us. So 
I assumed that if you were enlightened, then you would stop damaging other people. You know, that would be the inadvertently in the ways that uh, I assumed we were constantly doing. So um, at least myself. So I thought, well, if I if I was enlightened, I wouldn't blunder around, you know, causing harm. That's that's my big dread. So in practice, I realized, oh, I'm still going to be blundering around. And that's just kind of the way it is. I'm the blundering around part. And all I can do is stay completely present with that, whatever's presenting itself. And um, understand that other people are doing the best they can. They're present in their present moment experience. And it may be a completely confused view that they have, but they're completely present in that confused view. And so when you realize that, it's you realize how futile the attempt to fix other people or even to fix yourself really is. Uh, it's more about letting go of some notions um, or some convictions about who we are and how we are. Um, so uh, talking to Ephrat this morning, she was talking about dispersing or getting rid of things that are a part of the life that she's built for the last six years. And, uh, and that what great preparation that is for the ongoing relinquishment that we, if we, if we pay attention, uh, are engaged in um, perennially. So we, uh, we have a temporary delusion that we can hold on to things, but that's not, that's not the way life really is. So, uh, so time operates in the spiritual realm in a kind of timeless way. You're always already who you are. From the beginning of practice, you're already a Buddha unfolding. And that is very hard for us to get because we can easily see, I think, our own limitations and um, what um, he refers to as the restrictions, that is life as it is, and the way the difficulties we have meeting life as it is and accepting life as it is and not trying to fix things. It's not that you don't have an aspiration. Uh, it's that you stop being caught up in projects of making things work, fixing people, making the situation right. And in paying attention in a certain kind of way, being completely present in that time, the positive beneficial expression of your true nature can find its sort of spontaneous manifestation. It's not based on your will and it's not based on your intellect. It's not based on your ideas or imagination. It's based on a much deeper wisdom that's coming through you. It's not even something you possess. So it's not about thinking about the right thing to say. If that makes sense, um, hopefully. Um, so in our practice, what we encounter in life as it is, is signposts and teachers. And those things are not uh, often identifiable as signposts and teachers, but that's what we encounter. And if we're paying more, we're paying attention, the more we can receive guidance uh, from those signposts and teachers that show up in our lives and that uh, have this almost, um, I would say, karmic connection to our path. So I'm not going to say too much more. I think we'll get in uh, some, this, this is the um, 
last of Flint and my Dharma talks. And tomorrow, Kim will be speaking in this time space. And then following that, we will have the head student entering ceremony. So, and that will end our, our intensive. So please share in breakout rooms, of, let's see, four people, yeah, four people, um, a little bit of what your own experience is in this time being that we have of the intensive. Uh, and, and a little bit maybe of what you discovered in your timeline exercise. So we'll, we can go until 12 o'clock. Thank you.